If you've got a Bible, open to Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, last week we started a new series of sermons entitled Marked by Mercy as we look at what it means to be a people whom God is marking out for himself by his mercy as he, um, as, he, as he pursues us, as he seeks to rescue us from our rebellion. And if we're to be a church in the heart of Rockwall County that God is going to be pleased to use in order to put people right with himself and then put them back together in the image of Christ, uh, then we've got to get our heads around what it means to be the church. We've got to get our hearts around what it means to be the church. And last week we saw that the first step of that is beginning to offer our bodies to God, our eyes and our ears, our, our hands and our feet, our, our legs and our arms, our tongues, our ears as we listen, as we speak, as we look, as we act, that we begin to offer our bodies to God, that we sh- has God shift our hearts out of neutral and into gear to where we're offering acceptable sacrifices to him, that we no longer have any personal property that we're holding on to, that all of our lives and our bodies belong to God, and so we're offering them up to him, and that what keeps us on the altar day after day after day is not the shackles of duty that we must do, but the grip of God's mercy because he has pursued us and rescued us. So we saw all that last week. If you weren't here, you can find that on the podcast if you want to tune in and listen. But this week we're going to press forward into Romans 12, 2 is where we're going to be today. So if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen as we read verses 1 and 2 this morning. Paul says this in Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the Christian life uh, is not about patching up rotten siding. It's about God drilling down to the very core of your soul and laying a new foundation. Remember, in my senior, between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, I had the opportunity to work with a gentleman who was a part of uh, my church back in my hometown. Uh, and he was a general contractor, did some work on homes in the area, kind of doing uh, you know, repair jobs, didn't build houses necessarily, but just kind of worked on them. Uh, and he had a vinyl siding job that he contracted me to come help him with, because, of course, like any poor high school student uh, who's got the inner college, I needed to make a little bit of money. And so I went and worked alongside of him one summer. Um, and I was convinced that I needed to go to college. And so uh, we worked long and hard and dirty and muddy, ended up digging up sewer lines and all, all the way down to the city mains, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, but, uh, but this vinyl siding job that he had bid on ultimately turned into a much bigger project than he had anticipated or I had anticipated. Because the lady wanted us to put vinyl siding on her home, but as we began to strip off all the old siding, what we found was that there had been years of water damage in the home, so much so that all the, the foundation boards and beams that ran under the house had begun to rot. And so we had to literally jack the house up, and since I was the smallest, skinniest dude on the crew, it was my responsibility to crawl under the house while it's jacked up and begin to cut away and bang out all these old foundation boards so we could replace them. And so what, what, what started as like a two-day vinyl siding job turned into about a three-week complete complete shifting of the foundation of that home and most of us whenever we think of the Christian life we think that what what God desires from us and for us is that we just would would cover over with a with a thin layer of veneer the realities of our lives and that we would just kind of replace some of the rottenness underneath with a, a fresh coat of paint or some new siding 
But in reality, the Christian life is not about us patching up the siding and touching up the paint. But the Christian life begins whenever God drills down into the very core of our souls and he does so with a little bit of C4 and he just demolishes and obliterates the foundation that we were living off of and he begins to pour a new one for our lives. Because to pour a new foundation upon which we are now living and responding And so the Christian life is not about patching ourselves up, but allowing God to rebuild us from the ground up. It's the Christian life. And if you get the Christian life wrong, if you think of it one way, if you think of it as if I'm just kind of patching myself up with coats of paint and a little bit of siding, then ultimately what happens is if your view of the Christian life is skewed, if your understanding of the Christian life is off, off, off kilter, so to speak, then your understanding of the church is going to be as well. If your understanding of the Christian life is wrong, then your view of the church will be as well. Because if your understanding of the Christian life is that what I'm doing and what all of us in here are doing is just kind of trying to cover ourselves up with a few more coats of paint so that what we present outwardly is acceptable and pleasing to everyone who sees us, but what's really going on inwardly is we're just basically covering over a whole lot of rotten stuff then your view of the church is that we're just a bunch of people who are doing our best to project an image that's not really us, right? And so whenever we get together with people, we can't really be transparent. We can't let people see what's going on underneath, right? We can't peel back the siding for people to see a little bit of the rottenness that still exists in us as God is continuing to rebuild our lives upon this new foundation of his mercies, If you get the Christian life wrong, then you get the church wrong. The Christian life is not about covering up our sin with a fresh coat of paint. It's not about modifying our behavior, but it's about transforming our character. Do you get that? It's not about modifying our behavior, but about the transformation of our character. So that those who were once hateful and filled with hate are now being filled with love. So that those who were once harsh are now beginning to respond in ways that are filled with gentleness. So that those who were once wheels off in their lives without any kind of guardrails are now beginning to grow in self-control in their lives. Those who were once cruel are growing in kindness. Those who were once used to be incredibly impatient are now growing in patience. And listen, let me just go ahead and be the first to confess this morning that there is much room for growth in my life, right? There's much room for growth in my life, particularly in the area of patience and particularly in the area of those who are closest to me, all right? Listen, I I just kind of blew it up yesterday. Right? I had one of those days yesterday where I just blew it up. Right? I was incredibly impatient. Right? So all of us, to a person, right? What, what God is wanting to do is not just modify externally our behaviors, but transform internally our character so that there's real change taking place. So the church then becomes a people who are marked out by God's mercy that he is working in to change their character. So they're responding in different ways, not just patching over and covering up the rottenness. Right? What's happening is there's an internal change taking place that begins to work itself out in our lives as opposed to us trying to change all the external things hoping that those are going to change something inside. So it's important for us to get our minds around that idea. See, for those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, this change is not about us trying to become someone that we are not. That's how many people have conceived of the Christian life. I'm trying to become someone that I'm not. But in reality, what Paul says here 
is that Christianity is not about you trying to become someone that you are not, but about you becoming who you are in Christ. Not about trying to become someone that you're not, but about becoming who you are. And that's, that's the very foundation of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So that's what we want to press into this, to this morning. What does it mean to become who you are, and then how does that take place in our lives? So that we might learn how to be the church. You with me? All right, let's dig in. First, become who you are. In Romans chapter 1, uh, chapter, chapters 1 through 11, we, what we do, if you read all, all of what Paul says in Romans 1 through 11, what you're going to see is that he, he talks about how someone gets put right with God. Right? How do they get put right with God? So if we're estranged from God and alienated from God, if, we don't have, if we're not born as those who are in relationship to God, but those who have been running from God from the time that we came out of the womb before our legs could even work, right? We've been running from him. How do we get put right with God? In Romans 1 through 11, Paul lays out perhaps the most eloquent and the most uh, well-defended argument for what does it look like for someone to get put right with God? And there are three big theological terms in Romans 5 and 6 that really the, what Paul talks about really centers around in the first part of Romans. And the first term is this, is the term of justification. Justification, right? Now here's what that word means. The word is kind of a judicial term, it's a legal term. And it's the, a legal term that describes someone being declared, in the, biblically speaking, declared to be righteous. So in their position, they're put right with God by a declaration or a pronouncement from God. Paul speaks of this in Romans 5, 9, when he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by the wrath of God. And so Paul says the way that you get justified is not because you do a whole lot of righteous things, but because God declares you to be righteous by faith in Jesus who lived in your place and who died in your place. That's how someone is made right with God. It's not that you climb the ladder up to him by all of your good deeds and works and then one day you stand before him and if all your good stuff outweighs all your bad stuff then he lets you in. If all your bad stuff outweighs all your good stuff then he sends you down. No, Paul says the way you get justified, you're justified by the blood of Christ, him dying in your place, absorbing the penalty for your sin, and through faith, by God's grace, trusting in him, he declares you to be righteous. It's not that you do a bunch of righteous things, but he declares you. It's not that your practice is always or, or, or is, is righteous enough to, for God to let you in, but he pronounces you to be righteous because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. That's justification. That's what Paul's talking about. So that you move from being an object of God's wrath and his just anger against sin to being an object of his mercy and enjoying his kindness and compassion. Second word, reconciliation. Right? Reconciliation. In Romans 5.10, Paul says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, the work that God does on our behalf is not just some cold, detached, judicial pronouncement. But rather, it is God the Father, through God the Son, by the death of the Son, reconciling us to himself. So that whenever we sing, you're a good, good father, we, we, we can know what we're singing about. Because we've been reconciled to him. And have you ever had an estranged relationship with somebody in your family? Experience the pain of what that is like? 
but they won't talk to you, they won't engage with you, they won't interface with you, they won't invite you, a friend or a family member, and you're, you're cut off from them. But what God has done in Christ is not only declared you to be righteous, but he's also welcomed you into his presence so that what was lost in the fall, the fellowship and the relationship with God might be restored because of Jesus. You get to draw close to him. He's like a good father, like in Luke 15, who's waiting for his rebellious children to return home and longing and embraces them and runs to them and puts his arms around them and draws them close to himself. It's not just a cold pronouncement of a judge behind a bench, but it's the work of a father who is drawing us into relationship with himself. So justification, reconciliation, but then there's also a third term, sanctification. Another big theological term. And what is meant by the word sanctification is that what was declared to be true about you in Christ, what was declared in that moment, you begin now to work out in your deeds, right? What was pronounced about you becomes true of you in your practice over the course of time. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6, 19, he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So you're offering up your body, your ears, your hands, your arms, your legs, every part of who God has made you. You're offering those up to him. And as what was declared to be true about you in your justification now becomes functionally, practically true about you in your sanctification as that gets worked out in your life over the course of time. See, Romans 1 through 11 is largely about how does somebody get put right with God? God works and declares us to be righteous by grace through faith in Jesus, not by your works. And then he, and not only does he do that, but he welcomes you as a father around his table to love you and embrace you. And then he begins to put you back together in the image of Jesus. And that's what we see much of Romans 12 to 16 is about. The best way I can illustrate it is, is this way. It's through the image of adoption. Some of you have adopted children or you know people who have adopted children. Maybe they've adopted them from very difficult international circumstances or very difficult domestic situations. But at the moment that child gets adopted, instantaneously their legal status changes. Instantaneously they get a new name, don't they? They now get your family's name. Instantaneously, they move from what might be the cold, damp confines of an orphanage into a warm, loving, inviting home. Instantaneously, they move from being abandoned to being accepted. Instantaneously, they move from being orphaned to having a mother and a father now instantaneously they move from not having relationships with any perhaps anyone that they could draw close to to having siblings brothers and sisters perhaps instantaneously they move from having nothing to their name to now being a a, a, a legal heir of your inheritance right may not be much but they but they have access to it right instantaneously it happens as soon as this papers are signed as soon as the judge makes the pronouncement instantaneously But if you talk to people who have adopted out of difficult circumstances, where the child's life perhaps has been wrecked by the sin of their parents or their abandonment, while their legal status changes instantaneously, their behavior changes progressively. Because what they have to do is they have to unlearn 
all the coping mechanisms that they had to embrace, to adapt to life in their former circumstances. They have to unlearn all those triggers that would set them off. They have to unlearn what it was like to live as someone who was abandoned and learn what it's like now to live out of being accepted. They have to unlearn all those things. And it may take years, it may take months, it may take a lifetime of unlearning all of those things that were so drilled into them through their experiences. They've got to unlearn those things in a, in a progressive manner of what it's like now to live as someone full and free in a loving, warm home. While their legal status changes instantaneously, their behavior, their conduct changes progressively. And the same is true for anyone in this room this morning whom God has declared to be righteous in Jesus, not by your works, but by Jesus' work. Those who have been welcomed into God's family by the reconciling work of Christ and now brought to his table to feast with him. The same is true for you and I. Our legal status changes instantly when God declares us to be righteous by his grace through faith. But our behavior, our conduct changes progressively over the rest of our lives the rest of our lives so the rest of our lives is truly about us becoming who we are becoming who we are so how does that happen a couple of things this morning from this text first first Paul says the way this happens is you and I have to begin to resist being pressed into the image of this culture. Right? The way we become who we are is that there's a certain resistance that's formed to us being pressed into the image of this culture. Listen, every person in this room is being discipled by something or someone. Every person in this room has something or someone shaping their vision for life. Every person in this room has something or someone shaping the values with which they operate. And Paul says in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now the word conformed, the word conformed is a passive tense verb, which means there's something happening to you, but it's not happening by you. Does that make sense? Something's happening to you, but you're not the one who's actually carrying out the action. And then the word world, when it shows up in the Bible in this capacity, it's not talking about trees and plants and water and flowers and fields. It's talking about a vision for life apart from God. A vision for life, values that you embrace, that do not acknowledge or bend their knee to God's governance in your life. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, don't let, don't let this happen to you. Don't let the, the, this culture and the world, this vision for life apart from God, press you into its mold and form you in its image. Listen, I don't, I don't know about you, but we went through a season a couple of years ago where my kids just loved Plato. Right? I just loved it. Right? Every, every Christmas, every birthday, they just wanted more of this stuff that they could grind into my carpets. Right? That's, all they, that's all they wanted. 
right? And so they'd get the plate out and they'd bang it down onto the table and eventually pieces of it would fly on the carpet. They'd walk on it and I had to go scrape it out and cut carpet and all kinds of fun stuff. But one of the things that somebody gave them, somebody just kind of dumped a bunch of, like they were so gracious to us. They dumped a bunch of these Play-Doh molds into our playroom one day. So my kids had all these molds and they would take the Play-Doh out and they would just kind of squeeze the mold on, down on top of it, like the mold of a, a little kid or the mold of a dog or the mold of a knife or the mold of what, all these kinds of different things. They would just squeeze it down on top. Now the Play-Doh itself, the, the, the modeling clay, wasn't forming itself into that image, but it was being formed as something was pressed down on top of it. And Paul is saying, don't let the mold of this culture and its vision for life and its values in life be pressed down on top of you. But resist that. It's part of becoming who you are. It's being to thoughtfully engage with the, the vision and values for life in our culture and resisting them. That's not all he says. He not only does he say resist being shaped into the image of this culture, but he also says persist in being formed into the image of Christ. He says, do not conform any longer to, the, to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now the word transformed again is a passive tense verb, something happening to you, even in you, but not by you. All right? So there's something or someone acting upon you to change you internally. In the way, and not just in the, the thoughts that you think, but the way that you think. It's bigger than just these individual thoughts that you have, but the whole way that you think about God, the whole way you think about yourself, the whole way you think about life and your purpose and meaning for life, the whole way that you think about the way that you're interacting with other people, not just these instances or conversations, the whole way that you're thinking. He says there's got to be a shift and a change in the whole mindset that you have as you persist in being formed into Jesus' image. All right, now, now, now listen, it, it, again, it's, it's, it's one of the ways, let me say it this way, one of the ways that you know that you've been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ and you've been reconciled and brought back into his family is that there is a growing there is a growing approval of the will of God for your life. There's a growing approval. He says, the, he says, I want all this to take place for you, that you wouldn't be pressed into the culture's mold, but be pressed into Jesus' image so that you might test and approve the will of God. That's perfect and acceptable. That it wouldn't just be acceptable to God, but it would be acceptable to you. It wouldn't just be something that God approves of, but you would approve of. And so before, whereas whenever you were alienated from God and apart from him, you, when God says, be generous, maybe you ran away toward greed. But one of the ways you know that you've actually come to faith in Jesus and are being put back together in his image is that progressively over the course of time, when you hear in God's word the call to generosity, there is more and more approval of that for your life and embracing of that with your life. Or whenever God said, run toward purity, you ran toward perversion. Or when God said run toward compassion, you ran toward cold-heartedness. But progressively over time, there's more and more approval of the will of God in your life. It's one of the ways that you know you've passed from death to life and that God is working to put you back together in Jesus' image. So you, don't, you, you resist being pressed into the mold of the culture and you persist, you persist in being formed into the image of Jesus. So those are very abstract terms. So I've, I've got 16 minutes left. 
I want to press that down practically for us this morning. What does that practically mean? How do we begin to become who we are? We're going to resist and persist, but how does that happen, right? Do you feel the tension? These are passive verbs. I'm not doing this. Something's happening outside of me to me. So how do I participate in that? Well, listen, one of the ways that you and I participate in that has to do with our eyes. Has to do with our eyes. And let me say it this way. The reason it has to do with our eyes is because what you are beholding will shape what you are becoming. What you are beholding will shape what you are becoming. Whatever you gaze at, you will ultimately glory in. It will become the most substantial and weighty thing in your life. It will be your God. Whatever you stare at will shape you. Whatever you fix your eyes on, it will form you. What what you are beholding will shape what you are becoming. Let me show you this from the the Bible because you shouldn't believe me just because I said it. Okay? So Matthew chapter 6. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, that, he says these words. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, in that text, Jesus, typically we've heard that little quote, right? Maybe you've seen it on Instagram, passing it around, or maybe you've seen it, uh, you know, on a little, a little uh, cedar board, somebody painting and is trying to sell at Canton, or, right? The eyes, or maybe you've written in a poem to somebody that you, like, have these little butterfly feelings for. When I look into your eyes, I can see deep into your soul, because the eyes are the window to the soul. You ever heard that before? That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say the eyes are like a neutral pane of glass that light passes through. He says the eyes are the lamp that shine light and illumine your body. They're not the, not the windows to the soul, but they're the lamp of our lives, the lamp of our bodies. He says if your eyes are healthy and fixed on the light, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad and fixed on darkness, then your whole body will be filled with darkness. The eyes are the lamp of the body in the sense that they will show us which way to go, which steps to take. They will guide us in a particular direction. Wherever we fix our eyes sets the navigational trajectory for our lives. Whatever you are beholding, you will be becoming. Whatever you fix your eyes on, Jesus says, your soul will feast on. You will feast on it. Now listen, in the days before GPS, right? In the days before GPS and maps and charts, navigational charts, if you were to go out to sea and you were to travel from one point to another, one of the things that you would have needed to do is to look up at the heavens and to be navigated by stars in the sky. One of the most pervasive stars that, uh, that sailors in the ancient world would have used to navigate was the North Star. Why? Because it was a fixed position in the heavens. And so no matter what time of the day or what month of the year they were looking up into the heavens, the North Star was always going to be pointing due north. And so they knew their trajectory. They knew where they were headed based upon where that star was in the sky. Okay? So there was a fixed point they were looking to. And listen, all of us have those for our lives. We all have those fixed points of our lives that are on the horizon that we're looking to, that we're gazing at, that we're staring towards. And they are drawing us towards them. They're drawing us towards them. And we are becoming the kinds of people in relationship to the things that we are gazing at, that we're beholding. 
So listen, if you spend all of your discretionary time and waking hours when you're not at work or not at school staring at pornography, if you spend all your time staring at pornography, right? If you, if you have it on your phone, if you have it on your computer, if you have videos that you watch, if you spend all of your time staring at pornography, it will shape you into a particular kind of person. It will shape you into the kind of person who devalues the image of God in other people. It will shape you into the kind of person who sees them as an object and not the image of God. You will be shallow and you will be hollow. It will shape you into a particular kind of person. Listen, if you, I was at the hospital yesterday morning with somebody having, or Friday morning with somebody having surgery and there was a kid in the room who was running around there um, and he was just kind of, he was probably eight or nine years old and man, he was just lots of energy, okay? Um, and so his dad was sitting over there and, you know, uh, trying to corral him at times and this, the TV kind of in, in the waiting room had the news playing and had a commercial that came on for um, some kind of line of home stuff by Joanna Gaines, you know who that is? I think most people know who that is. Like the fixer-upper people from HGTV, right? And so he's just like freaking out. He's like, fixer-upper, fixer-upper, fixer-upper. And his dad's like, no, it's just a commercial. But you could tell, like, this dude has spent quite a bit of time watching fixer-upper, right? This little kid is eight or nine years old. He's like, he knows the fixer-upper people whenever they come on TV. And listen, if we fill our, the, the, our visual field with Chip and Joanna binge-watching episodes of Fixer Upper on Netflix, listen, then you're gonna be, it's going to shape you into a particular kind of person who has to have their home look a certain way and flow a certain way. You've got to knock out this wall and you've got to put this kind of tile and you've got to leverage all your resources to making my house look like this. See, what you are filling your field of vision with will ultimately form the kind of decisions and choices that you are making and will shape you into a particular kind of person. What you are beholding will shape what you are becoming. We need a fixed point on the horizon that doesn't change. It doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It doesn't move. We all have them and they will shape us into the kinds of people that we are becoming. Listen, if you're, if, if you're let, me, let me get maybe a little more personal and press it a little bit this morning. If you're, you spend all your time focusing on self, like what are my needs? What are the things that I want? What are the things that I desire? If you spend all of your time, if your fixed position on the horizon is a reflection of yourself in the mirror, then it will shape you into a particular kind of person who is easily offended and very demanding of other people in the context of relationships. It will shape you into the kind of person who has high expectations from others because they exist for you. <laughs> if you spend all of your time staring in the mirror at yourself, you will use others for your own gain. You will only keep those who make you feel good about yourself around you. No one could be, no one, you'll have no one around you who actually depletes you. <laughs> if you spend all of your time gazing in the mirror, you'll hold grudges, you'll hoard your time, you'll hoard your energy because everything is about self. But listen, if there is a fixed point on your horizon that is bigger than yourself, it will also shape you. It will also shape you. If you're looking at a God, if, you're, if your eyes are fixed upon a God who loves his enemies by dying for them and prays for them as they put him to death and persecute him, then it will lead you to be the kind of person who is quick to forgive. 
who is loving and gracious and compassionate. If you spend your time gazing at a God who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, then it will lead you to become a kind of person who comes under others to serve them as opposed to using them to serve yourself. If you spend your time gazing at a God who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that in him you might become rich, then you'll be so happily generous with all of your possessions and your money. Whatever you spend time gazing at, you will glory in and it will guide you. It will guide you. So what you and I need to do is begin to change the fixed point on the horizon of our lives that we're staring at and begin to gaze at the glory of Christ in the word of God. So you open up the Bible and you read it. And you devour it. And on its pages you see the glories of Christ being expounded from Genesis to Revelation and you gaze at him. And as you gaze at him, it begins to shape and change like something weird's happening inside and desires are awakening in my heart that I never knew before. As you gaze into the word of God and whenever you encounter something in the Bible, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, I have, you encounter something in the Bible that runs against your natural desires, then what do you do? You get on your knees and you say, God, I see what you say in your word and I believe it to be true. Would you make me feel it to be true in my life, in my heart? May I embrace it. May I wrap my life around it. May I live it. Because naturally, my natural desires say no, but God, I know what's best for me in your word is yes. Would you make that true in my life? So as you stare and gaze at the glory of Christ on the pages of the word of God, it begins to shape you. It begins to change you, begins to form you so that you become someone who's resisting and persisting and becoming who you are. Now we got six minutes left, so I'm gonna give you, I got more material than what I can cover in six minutes, but we're gonna, I'm just gonna quit, okay? Um, but let me give you two other, let me push this in two other ways for you, okay? Two other ways. Because what does it look like to resist being formed and persist in being transformed? You gaze, whatever you're gazing at, whatever you're beholding, but there are particular ways in which the world, this culture tries to shape our lives. And I wanna try and press into a couple of those this morning if I can before we're done. And the first one is this, is that you, you must resist being squeezed into believing that life consists in the abundance of your possessions. You must resist that to become who you are. Listen, uh, there was an NPR program on recently. Um, it was Dr. Dan Gottlieb, who's a therapist in Philadelphia, who was interviewing various high school students about the stress levels they were experiencing, all revolving around one particular class, one class, and it was the SAT preparation class. And so as he, as he interviewed these various students about why their stress levels were so high and centered around this one particular class, he started asking questions to get underneath what was going on in their lives. And so the first question he asked, he says, why do you put so much effort into the SAT prep course? And so they all responded, so we can get good scores. That's, all right, I'm with you. I'm, I'm tracking. Next question, let me get underneath that, he says. Why do you want good scores on the SAT so we can get into a good college? Why do you want to get into a good college, he says, so we can get good jobs? Okay, well, why, why do you want to get good jobs? So we can make a lot of money. 
And then he asked them one final question. Why, why do you want to make a lot of money? And at first, they all just kind of sat there in silence. Like, I'm not really sure how, I, I, I don't know. And then one young man stood up and he said this, so we can be happy. So we can be happy. So there's a whole generation, in fact, multiple generations in this culture who has been squeezed into the mold of believing that their life consists of the abundance of their possessions. But in Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 15, Jesus says, someone in the crowd approaches Jesus trying to get him to settle a dispute over an inheritance in the family. Sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) And Jesus says to them in verse 14, but he said, man, who has made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, what will make you most happy in this life is not everything that you own and everything that you can buy and the upward mobility that you have. Jesus says you have to guard against this, believing that you're going to find happiness in the abundance of things. This means you don't let the vision for life in our culture press you into the mold of believing that you're going to work hard until you're 67.5 years old, and then you're going to enjoy the lap of luxury in a comfortable retirement. Don't let the vision for life in this culture press you into the mold of wanting things that you don't need. Have you ever been there? Look, I've been, I'm there almost every single day of feeling the draw to things that I don't need. One of the ways that we resist being conformed into the image of this culture is by rejecting and resisting this belief that life consists in the abundance of my possessions. So what do you do? You stare into the Bible at this Jesus who says, don't build bigger barns. Don't build bigger barns for yourselves. But give it away. This Jesus, as we said before, who though he was rich, can you imagine all the wealth that he possessed of God Almighty that he would lay it down and that he would step into human history and give himself away for us? Reject this belief. Resist it. Fight against it by gazing at the glory of God in Christ. I only made it through one. I'll throw some more out there on the blog this week. But listen, as we close, here's what I want to say. I'm going to ask you this question. Listen, the change in practice does not come before a change in position. You can change your practice all you want and be a phenomenal Pharisee. Right? You can make sure the outside of the cup and the bowl are washed spotless. You can whitewash the tomb, but it can still be filled with dead men's bones, Jesus says. It's not about changing the practice so that you can have a change in position. It's about God changing your position by grace through faith and in Christ and then him progressively working out your practice over the course of time as he puts you back together in his image. So have you ever experienced the change of position? Have you ever stepped back and said, you know what, I cannot do this on my own. 
My abilities, my offerings to God are insufficient, but his offering for me is sufficient. And so I'm gonna throw my life upon the weight of God, or my weight of, of my life upon God. Let him be the foundation and begin to rebuild me and put me back together in the image of Christ. Have you ever tasted of the mercies of God that drilled down to the core of your soul and blew up your foundation and then begin to pump concrete in to pour a new one? Because if you haven't, you can walk away from here and go, I'm gonna resist and persist. I'm gonna gaze at Jesus and I'm not gonna buy the lie of the culture. And I'll become a really good legalist. Or you can begin to operate on a new foundation. I want to invite you to do that this morning. If that's you, I would love to visit with you at the close of our service. I'll be right there in the back and I'd love for you to come by. And I'd love to talk to you about that. David and Elizabeth are going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song as we close out this morning. So I'm going to pray. And they're going to come and we're going to sing.